Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, this is FEPS Talks, um, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. My name is Lance Andor. I'm the Secretary General of FEPS, and I have the great pleasure today to meet in Barcelona Professor Fiesta Esping Andersen, who doesn't need too much introduction because in the last 30 years, anyone who studied sociology, political science, political economy must have come across uh, his name, his theory, his various books. Professor Esping Andersen, thank you so much for having the time uh, to speak with FEPS. It's a pleasure. It's difficult to find a topic to start with because you have written so many books and you have researched so many topics about European uh, societies. But I believe it would be particularly interesting to focus on the question of the families because in recent about 15 years, you had many publications um, around uh, the question of families as uh, a unit of reproduction, but also in connection with gender equality and the rising inequalities in Europe. So somehow the connection between these uh, three factors was not um, explored by many other uh, scientists. And uh, I would like to highlight this also because family is a difficult subject for many in terms of social research, given that there is an aspect of you know, the private sphere and uh, there are many who would consider it more a conservative topic rather than a progressive one. How would you explain uh, the centrality of this question in your recent uh, research? The centrality of uh, family comes via many, many angles. Uh, one of them is via the child angle, which is maybe the single most important one. But another one that I think a good point of where to start would be there's this notion that families are eroding, that the whole institution of the family, as we know it, is gradually eroding. There is a theory called the second demographic transition that argues very much of the higher level of individualization and the erosion of family. I, think the data tells us that they are wrong. Mm -hmm. What we are seeing is erosion among the low educated populations. But what we're also seeing is a strengthening of the family mm -hmm. among the higher educated. So we see a return of the family mm -hmm. in terms of its stability, in terms of marriage propensity mm -hmm. and also in terms of fertility mm -hmm. that we see the return of the family among the higher level professional managerial classes the higher educated mm -hmm. uh, in contrast we're seeing declining fertility mm -hmm. and we're seeing more and more disruption of families more breakdowns and less formation of families among the low-educated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the world has, in a way, turned topsy-turvy mm -hmm. uh, because it used to be exactly the other way around. And a lot of it has to do also with the new context in which families exist. Mm -hmm. which is it is, a matter of income level or is it another factor which... Uh, in partially your it's income level. It is also 
I think it also has a lot to do with the precarity that increasingly is, that the low educated are increasingly confronting in society, not just in terms of income, but generally their life chances mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are generally very poor, or to be from poor to being very poor, in terms of career probabilities, mm -hmm. in terms of social protection, in terms of income, as, as you said. So the low-educated, low, low, low social status um, classes are on m many fronts confronting precarity. There is another factor that is involved here, which is that women that are relatively low educated, they don't want to make partnerships with low educated men. Hmm. Low educated women can, generally speaking, find a decent job status in the service economy. Hmm. Low educated or totally unskilled males that hmm. used to have a career in the industry, manufacturing, hmm which now is diminishing, have very few prospects. Mm -hmm. The service economy doesn't want these kind of rough men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So from the female point of view, partnering with these males is not very attractive. Mm -hmm. So that's one manifestation of a post-industrial crisis of societies? Yes, yeah, so we're getting this post-industrial scenario in which you have this decreasing family among the low-educated, increasing family again, or the revitalization, I would call it, of mm -hmm. family at the high end of society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if we speak about an increasing problem with fertility, as you also pointed to uh, this, how do you see policies at various levels, but I think in very diverse countries, which try to intervene, right? So impose some kind of government intervention. Um, in order to change this. What kind of toolkit do policymakers have? Yes, we used to think that a very comprehensive, affordable childcare policy would nurture more fertility under the assumption that the decline in fertility today has a lot to do with the incompatibility of having children and women's careers. And therefore, women don't want to have children anymore. Mm -hmm. But if you have high-quality childcare that is affordable, then you can diminish that incompatibility from the point of view of women's life chances, life course, and uh, decisions. Now, we, that was kind of the commonly believed solution to the child or to childbirth or fertility decline that we now see but we we have to be a little bit careful here because part of the fertility decline is simply cyclical mm -hmm. depending on the economic situation mm -hmm. and we've had very unstable economies uh, partly due to the great recession and partly due to covid and so forth and so on but some countries have actually seen a rise in fertility mm -hmm. accompanying covid There's some Scandinavia in particular. But some have very long-term stagnation, like Italy, for example. Yes. And that is a, a country in which the incompatibility of women's careers and having children is one of the 
most starkly clear cases of, of the problem. Uh, so we could say, what if, hypothetically, Italy were to have universal high-quality childcare like in Denmark or like mm -hmm. in Norway or mm -hmm. Sweden, would then fertility in Italy move up to Scandinavian levels? Mm -hmm. We are not sure. Uh, one way to test that would be to look at the regional differences in, in Italy. Mm -hmm. For example, the uh, Emilia-Romagna area, yes. a region, has relatively high childcare coverage. Mm -hmm. uh, somewhere around 55% of, of children are actually in childcare. But we do not see a significant increase in fertility in the Emilia-Romagna area compared to the mm -hmm. rest of Italy. Nothing that's worth mm -hmm. writing home about, so to speak. And uh, there's increasing skepticism about childcare as being the formula, which opens the question of, so what is the formula? And that is, we don't have an answer. Mm. There's probably no silver bullet, right? To, yeah. To I think part of the problem has to do with where I started, which is we do have fertility levels that are relatively high. Let me backtrack one moment. What is the best fertility level? What is that, the one we should strive for? There isn't a magic number. The real number, the correct number, is that people have the number of children that they desire to have. Mm -hmm. That is what we should aspire for. Mm -hmm. So what do we know about aspirations of having children? And there, surprisingly, we have great uniformity across Europe and across the social classes. Mm -hmm. The two-child norm is still very much hegemonic mm -hmm. throughout of Europe. And there is considerably more of the part of the population that want three children that want only one child. Mm -hmm. The percentage who want no children is minuscule mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. terms of desired fertility, yes. not in terms of completed. And the difference is between the completed and the desired. And the gap is huge in Southern Europe. The gap is relatively modest in Northern Europe, but it's growing even in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we had not expected. And we don't really have an answer to it. My, probably my primary answer is to go back to where we started, mm -hmm. which was the polarization of family well-being and family welfare in advanced societies, including also in Scandinavia, that the low end of society, the low status, low educated, low skilled, they simply have a very mm -hmm. bleak economic mm -hmm. future mm -hmm. in the labor market. And that is a big hindrance for them to partner and also to have children, mm -hmm. whereas it's not for the higher educated. And so the higher educated, which is not the majority of the population, mm -hmm. professional managerial classes are not the majority of the population. Mm -hmm. At the most, they are 30, 35% of the total workforce. So we have also a very large chunk of the population which has sub-fertility, so to speak. Yes. And there is, that is where the main problem lies. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is, so to increase fertility, probably we have to think of some ways or others to 
stabilize the economic social position mm -hmm. of the low end of society. Would you connect this with the so-called social investment paradigm? Uh, a, a greater role of the governments and uh, stronger emphasis of welfare states on social investment in general? Well, the social investment paradigm, as, as you call it, is, in my view, to a large extent, wishful thinking. To an extent, it works in terms of recycling citizens who have redundant skills. But is sort of the slogan in Denmark, the one-third, 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 in terms of social investment. One-third of the, the clients of social investment, no matter what you do, they are not going to make it. Whatever, mm. They are alcoholics, they are, mm. are severely handicapped, or whatever it may be, that they simply cannot be retrained, and social investments are simply not going to work for them, no matter what you do. The other third is population that it seems that it works but then they drop out again and then they enter kind of a cycle of entering into social investment programs training retraining programs and then they have a job for a while then they kind of drop out again mm -hmm. and then the last third is the one with success mm -hmm. and probably the one third that is a success would have been a success without the social investment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's some skepticism about will these so-called social investment policies really be sort of the solution alpha omega mm -hmm. in an alpha omega sense and that is doubtful. It's not that they should be discarded clearly uh, there is also evidence that they do have an effect that is positive from the point of view of giving citizens more adequate skills, more up-to-date skills. Retraining programs sometimes do have positive effects, so it's not to throw them out like the baby with the bathwater. But I don't think there is a patent solution, and we don't know what is the solution in terms of stabilizing the socioeconomic position of the low end of society. Mm -hmm. One mechanism I think that would clearly help a lot would be unionization. Mm -hmm. And here we have a difference between Scandinavia where you have still relatively high unionization even among this clientele. Indeed. Then you have in Southern Europe or even in continental Middle Europe you have very low unionization rates mm -hmm. of this clientele. Yes. And that means they don't have that social protection and economic security that union membership offers mm -hmm. citizens. So that may be one factor that one might want to consider. Another one has to do with uh, social policy. And here we are back to family. Yes. And that is family policies and support to families. But is it monetary support, like child benefit, and ensuring that the child benefit is a good value and keeps... Uh, Clearly, uh, yeah, family benefits, family allowances, mm -hmm. uh, child benefits in terms of monetary support, which has a lot to do with simply recognizing that there's a collective social value of the child that this individual family or couple or w woman is giving birth to. Yes. So we're recognizing that it's a social value, not just an individual value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
the more we recognize it's a social value and give that imprint, I think the more we're also going to see more births. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is, the individual that is afraid of having a child will probably have a child to a greater extent if it sees it as being socially supported and socially valued. The other thing we have to th take into consideration is simply the age problem. Jakob Minzer, who was an economist, he called it the age-wage problem. Mm -hmm. That is, when are you having the birth? Now, more and more women are postponing their first birth. Now up until about 31 years of age on average. Yes. And the average, of course, camouflages a lot of variation. We see the low-skilled are still relatively young when they have their first child. And that means that they are penalized quite heavily in the labor market mm -hmm. because they have not gotten integrated and consolidated very well. So the, if we could get the low-educated to postpone fertility, which is, that, that would be one possible solution. But we also have the situation in which very low-skilled women have very, births very, very early. Mm -hmm in a way to gain social recognition. Yes. Because they don't feel that they can make it through the education system and so mm -hmm. forth and so on. They don't think that they can invest in their skills. Mm -hmm. They don't have a skilled future. They will not postpone, but rather anticipate fertility as a way to have at least some role in society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a lot of could be done in terms of targeting policies towards very low-skilled women that they don't mm -hmm. exit the, the education system mm -hmm. early and drop out. Give them second, third chances in the mm -hmm. education system. Mm -hmm. So here's social investment coming back again through the back. I think it does, yes. Yeah. I think it does. Especially if I can give a, a, an excellent example to the phenomenon which you just described in my country but also elsewhere in Central Europe and Southeast Europe, the Roma minority. It's, it very much applies what you described in terms of having uh, a child very early and then it uh, is connected with early dropout from school, not connecting with the labor market sometimes at all or very weakly and then uh, indeed it uh, starts accumulating the social disadvantages in massive uh, exactly. scale. If I could add um, another dimension to our conversation, um, I think um, a lot of people are interested in how these capacities of the welfare systems have been affected by various shocks. Because you have been describing long-term trends when you said mm. the deindustrialization. Uh, uh, has been affecting uh, various family models and fertility trends. Uh, but now, in the recent years, we have been in a period of shocks. The pandemic was a shock. The war is a shock. I think it's also true that the policymakers, uh, you know, sometimes need to improvise, they scramble, they uh, look for various, you know, ad hoc solutions. But it, all this is a, a, really a test of the resilience of the welfare systems. And while it is true that you know, welfare states have been buried so many times and it, you know, they just continue to perform, even if people said they would not, but um, isn't it getting too much, <laughs> what we have experienced in the recent years in terms of uh, you know, shocks and inflation and uh, all different um, uh, stress? 
I mean, the big puzzle, in fact, is how resilient the welfare state is to all these changes mm -hmm. and to all these shocks that you are mentioning. And I think one of the reasons of its resilience, I mean, I cannot think of any welfare state that is going backwards. Sweden may be the exception to the rule, but Sweden aside, Sweden was also an ex extremely generous welfare state to begin with, perhaps too generous, and but it's, it has gone backwards a little bit. There's no doubt about that. Otherwise, you don't see any genuine erosion of the welfare state anywhere in Europe. Mm -hmm. To the contrary, you see actually Germany's probably my favorite example of them, that you have a new life to the welfare state. Germany is now copying Scandinavia in terms of a very, very aggressive childcare mm -hmm. policy, for example. Mm -hmm. They have revised and reformed their uh, maternity benefits system so that it doesn't any longer sort of lock women into a motherhood housewife role anymore, mm -hmm. but encourages women to pursue careers, mm -hmm. move them from part-timers to full-timers, mm -hmm. which is also very important. And this is something I forgot to mention when we were discussing also the low end of society, because the low end women tend to be part-timers. Right. And that means they're also very low income. And that's part of that syndrome that they're locked into a spiral of diswelfare. Mm -hmm. So back to the question, we don't see any genuine erosion of the welfare state. That has to do, I think, also with the political coalitions and how they've been working out. Mm -hmm. Now, it started in actually Denmark, but Scandinavia, with the new populist parties. Mm -hmm. uh, Denmark is called the People's Party or whatever, but the, whatever they're called, these new populist parties that have as their main policy anti-immigration, right? Yes. Anti-immigration parties. They have been eating out of the social democratic base mm -hmm. in a big way. Most of their support is actually tra what traditionally would have been either the or the potential base of the social democratic parties mm -hmm. voter. So those parties, whether they came to actual governing, governing status or they were silent partners or they were just there pressuring, they pursued systematically the same policies as the social democrats. And not surprisingly, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. their electorate was the old social democratic electorate mm -hmm. that wanted a welfare state. Yes. So these populist parties, the new right-wing or extreme right-wing parties, are very much pro-welfare state. Also, welfare chauvinist, uh, many of them. That uh, you know, they, they, they the yes. locals, the national welfare state for citizens, not for immigrants. Exactly. This is an issue, I would yes. say, in, in inside Absolutely. Europe. Absolutely.
vis-à-vis other Europeans, but also vis-à-vis non-Europeans. Yeah. Uh, this is pretty much a major political question. But this indeed brings us um, to a very important uh, question, because um, I think, especially after your book uh, on the words of uh, welfare capitalism, I think social democracy was very, very closely linked with the universalist model of the welfare state that is based on social rights and social citizenship and uh, a more egalitarian uh, approach. Do you think this link still exists, that social democracy is linked to a certain form of the welfare state, which is more egalitarian, more universalist uh, than the other forms? Generally speaking, yes, with a little bit of exceptionalism in, thrown in. And here I could cite, for example, this, what is happening now or unfolding in the Social Democratic Party of Denmark, which is beginning to become welfare chauvinist in its policies of excluding immigrant populations and uh, making policy that is to their disfavor. So the Social Democrats have actually managed to erode the voter base of the populist party by adopting its policies. And by adopting its policies, it has in a way destroyed a little bit of its credibility as the universalistic, the fount of universalism, because it is now becoming universalistic only for citizens, mm-hmm. not for non-citizens. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is tragic, but it is an evidence that the universalism is being eroded in the corners, not in its base. Right. In terms of the basic welfare state model and thinking of the social democrats, it remains as universalistic as it always was. But with that erosion in the corners in terms of mm-hmm. adopting kind of mm-hmm. non-universalistic attitudes and programs mm-hmm. in front of the immigrant populations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But would you say that we should still measure the performance of these welfare states, whether they are social democratic or not, on the redistributive effect? How much it manages to redistribute when we have rising inequality of the market incomes? Or there are also other parameters or other issues we should, we should focus on? Um, Well, the main redistribution comes via retirement pensions. There, of course, we're facing the long-term crisis of aging of populations and how to finance pensions in the future, but I don't think that's what we're, we're going to start talking no, about no. today. So the, in terms of the redistributive effect viewed in its totality, retirement pensions is a big, big, big one because, of course, mm-hmm. if you look at the income of pensioners pre-retirement income at zero, and suddenly they get a lot of money. So that's 80% of total redistribution, simply retirement pensions. And the other big important part of redistribution would be probably family benefits and maybe unemployment benefits mm-hmm. in cases where you have a large unemployment population. Yes. Like Spain. Like in Spain, uh, but not like in Denmark or in Norway. I think there will be a reduction in almost necessarily of redistribution simply because of the necessity of reducing uh, the load of pension benefits. Mm-hmm. 
because what we have now are the large cohorts that are now in retirement mm -hmm. until they start dying out. That's my cohort, for example, no? Mm -hmm. 50s, 60s cohorts. Once they start dying out, then you have easing of the problem. But right now in the next 10 to 15, 20 years, we're gonna have that, those huge cohorts eating up all the mm -hmm. redistribution. So much is being re resolved by demography simply, the, the waves of democracy? Well, who knows what it's all going to look like 20 years down the line. We have no, I, I mean, mm -hmm. that would be pure speculation and I wouldn't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't dare speculate about that. Mm -hmm. But given that pensions is the big part, the huge part of the total redistribution, that is probably the scenario for the next, mm -hmm. right now and for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, start to hemming in on the pension benefits. Mm -hmm. And in some countries, the pension benefits are also too luxurious. Mm -hmm. Italy is a, probably the mm -hmm. most glorious example of mm -hmm. exaggeratedly generous pension benefits. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's almost 100% of your income, mm -hmm. prior income. As you mentioned, um, Italy and uh, their pension uh, specificities, um, I would like to close with uh, a question exactly in relation to this, because uh, you know, the European Union, the European Commission, have been telling the Italians that, look, you know, try to reform this. Um, but if, um, if the EU just does this in the name of sustainability, the EU will be seen as a one-sided reformer of the welfare states and that's going to be the negative side of it. Um, do you see a more positive role for the European Union to play in terms of fostering welfare systems and uh, ensuring that uh, they are more effective in terms of combating inequality and ensuring better quality of life? What I would like to see, and this is what I also discussed very much when I was working with uh, President Barroso, what I would like to see is that the EU takes initiative to ensure 100% universal childcare of mm -hmm. high quality mm -hmm. across all of Europe. Mm -hmm. Now, that's very easy to do for Scandinavia because it's already there. Yes. It's not there in Romania and Bulgaria or in Italy yes. or in Greece or in Spain. Spain is moving up, but it's still far from universal. So the EU's powers, be it of persuasion, be it also by financing, I would like to see that the EU gives some subsidy to countries to build up uh, childcare for the under six years of age, mm -hmm. up mm -hmm. to six years of age, uh, preschool. And that would have a double bonus. One, one would be it would mobilize the latent labor force of women and thereby household incomes. So, and that would be in particular to the advantage of the low income, low educated population. And the other one is you will be investing in the cognitive skills of your future generations and cohorts of children that start school. Mm -hmm. So you will diminish school dropout. You will increase the capacity mental cognitive capacity of children to get through the education system. Just to give you an idea, a child that has been in a high quality preschool child's care system mm -hmm. is at the first year of formal schooling 
one year ahead of children who were not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The effect is huge mm -hmm. if it's high quality. Right. And the, the effect continues through the schooling system. Mm -hmm. So you will have less dropouts, you will have more continuation of schooling, and you will have upgrading of the labor force. Fantastic. Um, Professor Esping Andersen, I would like to thank you for this vision. I think uh, you provided us not only with a very sharp and thorough analysis, but also this uh, policy orientation, which uh, in this time when uh, the socialists in Europe prepare for the next year, which brings um, the European Parliament elections, I think it can form indeed um, part of um, a lot of reflections which are ongoing. We indeed want to ensure that social Europe is not simply a slogan. Right? But the, the European Union is something that can play a direct role in uh, improving uh, the working and living conditions of uh, the Europeans. And your guidance, uh, which you had provided in the recent decades, but also through this interview, is going to be invaluable in this uh, process. So I thank you again. It was a pleasure. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.